Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore different perspectives on connective tissue conditions and what we can do to treat our symptoms and to live more fulfilling lives. I'm your host, Carrie, and I'm a patient diagnosed with HEDS, MCAS, POTS, and related conditions. Today, our guest is Dr. Melissa Kale, a physical therapist diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Dr. Melissa was a competitive level 10 gymnast in her earlier years and ended up incurring a number of injuries, including a career-ending stress fracture to her lower back. Dr. Melissa created her own Chimera Fit method that combines elements of Pilates, yoga, strength, and balance work. She has been teaching her method to others with hypermobility, arthritis, and joint pain for over 20 years. She also has a great Instagram page with lots of content about different movement approaches for people at many places on the hypermobility spectrum. Dr. Melissa, hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Hi, Carrie. Thanks so much for having me. Ah, Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, Let's start back at the beginning. When did you first learn about hypermobility and what was your path to diagnosis? So probably like most of your listeners, this is kind of a long journey, but I knew I was hypermobile from back in the days when I was a gymnast. It was pretty apparent early on in my gymnastics career that I was the the bendiest of all the gymnasts in my own gym. And then as I got out to compete, I was usually the bendiest of even the competing gymnasts. And as I progressed through my gymnastics career, I really leaned pretty heavy, unfortunately, into those uh, those hypermobile skills. I was really famous for doing all the things that you're not, I know now you shouldn't do, like putting your foot on your head and stretching into oversplits really extremely. Um, it was something that I, you know, I just didn't know. And I was praised really highly for and got good points and, and advanced in gymnastics pretty far with that hypermobility, even despite a number of injuries. Um, I had multiple ankle sprains, strains, injuries that kind of popped up way more often than the rest of my teammates, but I loved gymnastics so much that it, I worked through it. I was thankfully able to recover from those injuries. No one pointed, you know, seemed to notice that the hypermobility was potentially a source of those injuries. Cause I mean, gymnastics is naturally a injury prone sport to begin with. So it didn't really seem terribly unusual. Um, And then it wasn't really until after I finally had to give up gymnastics with that stress fracture to my back that um, that's when I started to really notice changes in my body. I started noticing pain in a very different way, kind of probably what most of other people with hypermobility experience, where it's just kind of this generalized, all over, achy, everything kind of hurt sort of way. And I thankfully had that gymnastics background to recognize, you know, like I knew I was bendy. I knew I felt actually better when I was doing gymnastics despite those injuries. So I pretty quickly got myself into as much exercise as I could that made me feel as close to I felt when I was a gymnast. So I got into some strength training, um, started experimenting with things here or there, and then I got into uh, physical therapy school. And that's kind of the next round of where I started learning about hypermobility because there, again, in PT school, I was the one person in class that whenever we'd learn about joint range of motion and how to measure it and joint mobility, I was way more mobile than everybody else. And the instructors would be like, oh, look at this. You're you're never going to see this. And 
it was, you know, because in PT school, you're generally learning about how to identify limitations in range of motion and stiffness and things like that. So it was something people noticed, but again, it didn't really register as something that could have been a problem. Um, and in, we, in fact, we did learn a little bit about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And I want to say it was like, you know, one slide, maybe two. And it was presented in a way where they talked about it as a genetic condition that the patients would come to you. Like, so as a physical therapist, we were basically taught if someone had EDS, they would have been diagnosed when they were very young because it's a genetic condition. They would have probably been diagnosed as a child with a genetic test. And you would already know that coming in, um, seeing a patient with EDS, and they most likely would have, you know, multiple dislocations of many, many joints. It would probably be, you know, using an assistive device, if not a wheelchair, bracing of all over the body, which there are very many people that are in that situation with EDS for sure. Um, but when you're learning medicine, you're learning physical therapy, you're taught to recognize patterns. And so this pattern of the most extreme, the, the more involved cases of EDS, that certainly didn't resonate with me when I was thinking about my hypermobility and the various issues that I was having. That just seemed like, well, I'm bendy and things hurt, of course. Um, but that makes sense. So it's not a big deal. Um, I, I can figure it out. And, but unfortunately I, I figured it out to some degree, but then over the years, it just, things just kept getting worse and worse, even though I was learning more about how to control my body and learn how to fix things as they come up in physical, as a physical therapist, um, I started getting other, you know, other issues. I started getting really severe GI issues, fatigue, brain fog, other systemic types of things that felt like I just had the flu all the time. I just felt really unwell and it just, it progressed really over a number of years to the point where I literally didn't think I was going to be a physical therapist anymore because I just, I, I couldn't handle being in the clinic. I would get even just a couple hours of being upright and in, now that I know it's dysautonomia, just being there for a short amount of time, I would just be so exhausted. Um, my body would start hurting, like all these issues were happening and it was very, very challenging. And I was going to doctors, going to GI doctors, going to primary doctors, and no one really put the pieces together um, until I finally started investigating it myself. And it came from really diving down deep into what was causing my GI symptoms, because that was kind of like for me where things kind of got out of control first. Because mm -hmm. um, with the musculoskeletal things, I was able to take my training as a therapist and gymnastics and Pilates and kind of piecemeal my own treatment that way for a while. But when the GI stuff got out of control, like I had no idea what to do with that. Um, and thankfully, and I, I do want to share this with your listeners because so many people struggle with GI issues. Um, I found this woman. Her name is Siobhan Sarna. She runs a website called SIBO SOS because one of my bigger GI issues was SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And Siobhan Sarna has a website full of amazing resources and uh, webinars and masterclasses talking to all the experts in the realm of SIBO. And she herself has EDS, although this website is for anyone with any kind of SIBO. But they did talk in several of those masterclasses about how an underlying cause of SIBO could be EDS. And that's where it kind of like 
put up the, you know, I started getting the idea that, oh my gosh, maybe after all these years, I actually have EDS. Um, and even after recognizing that myself, I still was hesitant to accept it because I knew it was hard to find people who understood it. So regardless, I, I took that information and then I went head, you know, heads down into the literature and into the resources available, finally found rheumatologists, geneticists, et cetera, doctors that understood EDS and got an official diagnosis, not until I was a year ago when I was 46. Wow. That's, uh, it's an incredible story and a lot to unpack. It's so striking to me how, you know, you said some things that I've heard just a few times on the podcast now about how nobody was putting the pieces together. I feel like that's one of the things you hear all the time and that many of us have experienced it, that it wasn't until you started doing your own research that you started getting on a path to better answers. And I've heard from several practitioners, physical therapists, doctors who have EDS and studied it in their profession and didn't realize that that or heard, you know, heard about EDS or heard about hypermobility, but didn't make the connection that that's what they were experiencing because the way EDS and hypermobility are often portrayed um, in the world at large, but also in you know professional learning environments, I think is um, incomplete at best um, and kind of misleading. In, you know, in a lot of contexts. So I've heard other another physical therapist actually say, and I think it's in a past episode, and I'm blanking on the name. So sorry to whoever it was that you know, their understanding was of EDS was that it was all people in wheelchairs, you know, so like a very, the most or sort of on the more extreme, I should say, end of the spectrum of being debilitating. And I wonder, was that, did you have any, you know, pre-existing conception of hypermobility and EDS from your training? Or did it not really come up, I guess, like in your educational uh, course. Yeah. So we talked about it very briefly and just like the, the other therapist, and I know I've listened to that episode too, had said it was very similar where it was presented as the most extreme scenario of it. Um, and to make matters to kind of drive that message home, I treated a patient with EDS for years, probably over, you know, decades. That was that presentation of EDS. So even though she and I we got on like peas and carrots because she really appreciated the things that I had to say and things that I was teaching her from what I learned from having a hypermobile body. She didn't strike me as like, oh, that's me because I didn't have to have multiple surgeries to stabilize my joints. And I hadn't been in a wheelchair like she had been. Mm -hmm. It didn't really, I was like, well, I have something, but I don't have what mm -hmm. this patient has. And I also didn't think that health providers would take me seriously when I would bring it up, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is unfortunate because I had, actually I had brought it up here and there over the course of many different random things. So I'm like, oh, and by the way, like I'm kind of hypermobile. Do you think there's something to this? And they would just dismiss me right away. So mm -hmm. um, that was really, really like a barrier. And if I had known hypermobile EDS was a spectrum disorder if it had been presented that way, even if it was just like literally one more slide about it mm -hmm. in PT school, we had been learned that like, you know, it, there's like many things, there's a spectrum that makes so much sense now um, and learned how to quickly screen the Biton scale that would have 
probably accelerated my road to a diagnosis and for so many people, so much faster. Absolutely. And that's one of my big advocacy efforts and something I really try to focus on on this podcast. And when I speak to other hypermobile people and people who have never heard of hypermobility, I really try to emphasize and I'm trying to showcase the true spectrum nature of this condition. And we've talked about it before on this podcast, but it truly is the most successful people in, in, in quote unquote, abled, let's say, um, you know, in virtually every field, doctors, lawyers, very overrepresented in the um, performing arts, you know, things having to do with physical, whether it's swimming or, you know, ballet, especially, you know, to people who are, you know, about the most debilitated that I've seen um, in almost any context and everywhere in between on that. And it is really unfortunate, like you said, and I've you know heard this time and time again, that it's really, you know, tends to be presented in terms of, you know, that extreme, let's say, 10th percentile, maybe end of the spectrum, and the rest of it is kind of forgotten and, um, or ignored or dismissed, like you said, with mentioning it to your doctor and, and being blown off, there's kind of this misperception oh, you're so flexible, that must be so nice, you know, and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. those people in our modern society are very inflexible, I would say, you know, physically and otherwise. But um, so if you're inflexible, you're looking at people who are more flexible thinking, oh, I wish I could have that. And I'm thinking of another context, someone saying to me, oh, you have such low blood pressure, you're so lucky, I have high blood pressure, you're lucky to have that. And I'm like, no, too low or too, it's like Goldilocks and the three bears, you know, too hot, too cold. It's like, they're both symptomatic and they're both can be really difficult to live with. And it's, you know, uh, low blood pressure, extremely low is, um, it can be really, really dangerous as we know. So right, right. just kind of this, you know, hypermobile people kind of go against the grain of what, you know, the majority of the population looks like and is experiencing. And so it's really unfortunate how dismissed the very real symptoms and features of hypermobility are. But, you know, work like yours and you have an amazing presence like on social media. Thank you so much for that reference to SIBO SOS. I'm definitely going to check that out. I actually had not heard of her before. Um, So it's always great to find new resources. And so, you know, also kudos to you for trying to provide practical advice and represent the spectrum. And I always think it's great when people give credit to, you know, the other, you know, people in the space who have helped them and are doing great work. And I really enjoy that kind of collaborative approach because these conditions are so complicated and there is such a spectrum, the Venn diagrams of overlapping conditions that don't easily subdivide out into clear groups or phenotypes or whatever you want to say. And so, you know, we really, it takes a village, like we really need many perspectives and we need this condition to be represented for the full spectrum that it truly is. Absolutely. And Carrie, you're doing such an amazing job with this podcast and getting that information out there. And as you know, like in academia and medical training, like it's slow to get new information into curriculum and things like that. But formats like this, like this podcast and social media, we can share information so much quicker. You know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Sometimes there's misinformation or confusing information, but it's really nice to have sources like what you have here, which you're interviewing credible people who know 
what they're talking about, where people can actually feel confident that the information that they're getting is is useful and coming from a knowledgeable source. And it's like so readily available. You don't have to wait years and years for it to get into your doctor's curriculum and for them to graduate and all of these things. So it's it's so incredibly helpful. Thanks. Yeah, that's definitely the goal. Um, I, I feel like, especially when I started this, uh, I kind of had a rapid shift in my thinking from thinking I had all the answers or at least the ability to find answers to feeling like I actually knew very little uh, Mm -hmm. for certain. You know, once you start to kind of dig into, well, how do I know this thing that I know? A lot of things become a lot squishier than they feel when you sort of have the ignorance is bliss kind of attitude, you know, so and I still am kind of in that phase where I feel like I don't have many answers, but I feel like I have questions. And that's as good of a place as any to start. And so yeah, and you know, for listeners, I, I try to feature diverse perspectives, because of this spectrum nature, because, you know, what what works incredibly well for one person, you know, might be harmful for another and vice versa. And it's really good to have you know, options for different approaches and and different potential ways of treating these things that are incredibly complex. And on that note, you developed your own Chimera Fit method to address this incredibly complex spectrum. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and how you created this method? Yeah, sure. So Chimera Fit is the name that I gave my method that combines strength training, Pilates, yoga, balance training. and this came about over many years of, of practice. And it's all kind of rooted in my gymnastics training. So as a gymnast, there's so much detail, so much attention to detail about how exactly and precisely that you're moving, that that I feel like it was such an amazing benefit to me to have that growing up. So like as my nervous system was being formed, as my motor patterns were being formed, I had this very fortunate event of having very detailed interactions with my body and learning how to control it in a very precise sort of way. So I knew as soon as I, even though I, when I had to leave gymnastics, that I still really craved that fine control and needing that type of movement practice with within my body. Um, and it took a while because it really wasn't, you can't just like as an adult, just take up gymnastics <laughs> or like, I, I knew that wouldn't be good for me after having so, so many injuries. Um, so I experimented with a lot of different things, um, and all of which had their own pros and cons. Um, I certainly early on started doing weight training with just like weight machines, very low level light machines that, you know, I felt my body could tolerate. And, um, that was right off the bat, very beneficial. However, it didn't feel quite like everything that I needed because like the machine was holding me up and there were certain movements that I really missed and it just it still didn't stop me from having you know neck pain from sitting in class and back pain from doing random things it wasn't quite a complete movement system uh, so then as soon as I finished PT school I did additional training in Pilates which I instantly loved because it was probably the closest thing that was reminded me of gymnastics that very detailed quality of movement practice and there was a flow to it that felt very much there's you know in gymnastics it's a lot of power moves but there's also like a dance element of course to it and i really liked that you know that flow of movement from one thing to the next and the the precision involved with that the coordination with your breath it was all just instantly as soon as i was introduced to it i i knew that this was something that i really 
I really enjoyed and I started teaching it right away. And then as I started teaching it and I started learning more about it, there was definitely some things missing. And in particular, what was the biggest thing that was missing is the style that I was teaching was just mostly matte polized because I was teaching it in the physical therapy department that I worked in. We just had an open space in the middle of the gym. We didn't have reformers or anything like that. Um, so I made do with the, with what I could with just the mat. And I also felt for especially the patients at the clinic I was working at, you know, clinic uh, or Pilates where you would go to a studio and use all of that equipment was very inaccessible to some people just financially. It was very, very difficult to be able to do that. Even though those machines are absolutely wonderful, I was in a situation where I had to make do with limited resources and had to get a little bit creative. And what I found was that if I then took the the parts of Pilates that could be easily done in a mat setting and then combined it with some of the things I had learned from strength training, combined it with some of the things I had learned as a physical therapist to address different movement um, faults or movement substitution patterns that I would see as a PT, that started to really click with a lot of people and make it a little more um, complete. And then I also got curious about yoga because I'd heard so much about it and everyone's like, you must be great at it. So, you know, I tried out some yoga. And I, again, I loved the accessibility aspect of yoga because you could just have a mat. You don't need anything fancy. It doesn't really cost much money at all. You could just hop on YouTube or something like that. And I really appreciated the mind-body aspect of yoga, which seemed to take what was already there in Pilates, but take it to the next level. It was very, very focused on tuning inward and feeling in your body. And the breath work was just even at a next level of that, which my like ramped up nervous system instantly responded to. However, there was definitely cues that I would hear teachers uh, saying, like going deeper into the poses, or there would be these, you know, back bends and headstands and other movements in the yoga practice, depending on which class I took, that I could tell, even without trying to go too deep into any one particular style, that there was definitely movements that I could assess, assess that were just not for me. And in fact, I never really found any one particular style of yoga that was 100% for my body. So I basically just took the parts of it that I knew were complementary to what I was already doing, the balance poses, the breath work, some of the gentle, more gentle movements, you know, and certainly incorporating in the relaxation, the shavasana, all of those things. Those things combined seem to really address so many issues that I was seeing in myself and in my patients to be able to work on not only just strength and stability, but also having a movement practice that allows you to practice all of those fine-tuned, small nuances of our movement that get our stabilizers working, connect with your breath, work on your nervous system, and do it in a way that is accessible, number one, and then number two, doable from a time perspective, because you could easily just do all strength training or just do hours and hours of Pilates or hours yoga class. Most of the people that I work with don't have time to do all of these all of these things. But if we can get little bits of the best of all of those worlds together, that's where I found this really nice, happy medium uh, that has been working really well for me and for my patients. That's amazing. It's clear that you've really thought about what works for your body and what works for your clients. I, I just love this approach of combining what works for a hypermobile person from all of these different great practices because uh, myself definitely, but so many in the community 
you know, we struggle with the rigidity within some different approaches, you know, so there are things, you know, like you said, in yoga, in Pilates that will resonate, but then there are things like you said, that just don't work for, you know, an individual or for hypermobile people more broadly. And so I think I just love that approach of figuring out what works and why and, you know, integrating that into, you know, a practice that's also time friendly and user friendly and like really thinking about fitting this into someone's life. Not everyone can just go on a two week meditation and yoga retreat, you know, at some, you know, spa or something. So the practicality is really important. And you talked about the overactive nervous system. And I think that's such a an important point. I think a lot of us really struggle to amp down and to, to calm down. Like it just immediately reminded of one time getting a massage when I was in the middle of like a 60 hour work week, just totally in pain, total muscle spasms everywhere. And the masseuse was like shouting at me, like, relax your arm, relax, relax. <laughs> and I was like, I can't, like, you don't understand. This is the most relaxed I've been, you know, in recent memory. And I cannot, I don't know how to let that muscle go. It's just in spasm and, and sort of the stress of being shouted at to relax, you know, does not help to relax you in any way it's really challenging on our own to, to regulate this, you know, nervous system that can go really haywire. And so I think that's a particularly important part of, you know, any kind of physical regimen is like, you know, we can get amped up, but that kind of backing it back down and the calming and the breath work and all of that can be really challenging because a lot of us have minds that are going a million miles a minute and sitting with our own thoughts and, and being calm can be, I think, one of the biggest challenges for for many hyperbubble people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Carrie, it's funny. I'll say when I first was introduced to the idea of the Shavasana or laying quietly, it it didn't resonate with me right away. Actually, I think I probably misrepresented that because I love it so much now. But now when I think back to when I first was introduced to those ideas, I thought they were silly. You know, it just, it was like, why am I, my brain was going 24 seven. I had gotten where I had in life by like pushing and pushing and being type A and perfectionist. And that had like been helpful for me. So why would I like stop and slow down? And how could doing nothing possibly help me? Like, it just didn't make any sense at first. I'm like, this is, a waste of time. Like I should be doing something. And it took a while of practice. I, and people would tell me I should try these things. And I don't know how it finally clicked with me to actually sit and allow those breathwork practices, those mindfulness practices, how to kind of actually absorb them and feel the change in my body. It was kind of a slow, gradual thing. But when it finally did happen, it, it's so profound. The amount just to feel your nervous system shift from that sympathetic overdrive to literally feeling that muscle tension kind of melt away. It, it, it can be life-changing to learn how to tap into that. I just want to encourage other listeners that maybe are like struggling with that process of like, yeah, 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 I know I should do it. Um, Cause I totally get it. I was skeptical about it. I didn't think it was for me or I thought maybe I couldn't do it, but with some time and with some practice with it, it really made a profound change in my body. And that's why, like when I teach my classes, I always, always end with a Shavasana. Always. We always start with breathing. Even if we end up doing higher level exercises, there's always this sense that we need to get our nervous system in a place where our muscles can be not guarding and bracing and fighting 
and that we can come at the movement and exercise in an ideal, like muscular, neuromuscular state, where like a ready state where it's ready to accept that movement. And then even at the end, giving yourself that opportunity to really allow things to calm down, getting the reps in of practicing, allowing those muscle spasms or muscle tightness to allow them to let it go. It's, it it's, seems counterintuitive that doing less can actually be so powerful, but it really can. Absolutely. And we live in this culture that's all about doing more, getting these endless dopamine hits from leading tasks and, and doing things. That's been a big lesson for me too, like resting and spending time in that parasympathetic state of the nervous system is just as important as getting your heart rate up and the cardio and the doing stuff part. It's a lesson we don't often hear or spend much time on. And I remember I was doing yoga many years ago around the time I got diagnosed. I remember first hearing that Shavasana means corpse pose. I had a lovely yoga teacher. She's amazing. She said something to the effect of like corpse pose gives us an opportunity to practice dying or like practice what it's like to be dead. That was really disturbing for me at the time. Thinking about that what kind of caused you know, no slight to her because I like it actually led me to some profound insights. But I initially was kind of terrified. I'm like, I don't want to practice dying. Like, I, you know, <laughs> I'm worried about dying. I, and at that point, I was suspecting something was going on with me systemically, but getting blown off, getting told, I see women like you all the time. You're just trying to have it all. You know, it's a mm-hmm. kind of thing that a lot of us have heard. But then I thought about it more and, you know, how much death and life are actually this like integrally related relationship and how important that is and and the metaphor that's in that you know not that it's like we're just practicing for the end of our life you know but the idea of integrating the different parts of life and kind of honoring those different experiences and realizing that they're all ultimately part of life I guess so yeah I think that's um, a really important insight and yet just to kind of confirm what you were saying, like my mind was very resistant to this idea of relaxation or maybe not even resistant. Like I just didn't even know how or where to begin with relaxation, but it makes, it makes such a difference to find whatever, whatever your personal version of Savasana is, even if it's not that. I also really like the trick. I think I learned it from the book, The Brain That Changes Itself, which is a great book. I'm blanking on the author's name right now. He talks about like, because our eyes get so strained and the muscles around our eyes get so contracted because we're always looking at a screen or doing a lot of close work typically in modern life. There was a suggestion to close your eyes, imagine a night sky, like kind of a, a deep blue, like indigo night sky with stars in it. When you do that, well, when I do it and I've sort of tried had had some other people try this as well it causes this like deep relaxation around those muscles in the eyes and it just feels so wonderful so for anyone out there who maybe full-on savasana is not for them something to maybe try and i highly recommend that book it's really it really was um eye-opening to me in a lot of ways many patients with hypermobility struggle with pain and fatigue that interferes with their ability to consistently move and, you know, stay in a PT practice or Pilates practice, whatever they're doing. How do you address those challenges in your practice? Yeah, those are by far the two most challenging uh, barriers, right, to movement. And in fact, 
I wanted to talk about fatigue first because honestly, I feel like for the hypermobile people that I work with and myself, the pain is there and it's on board, but we have this amazing resiliency to somehow deal with the pain, even though we probably shouldn't. I'll talk about that in a minute. We shouldn't just push through pain, number one. But there's a sense of having a learned ability to kind of work through it, right? But fatigue, on the other hand, can be so incredibly more debilitating at times that it doesn't even get as much credit because it just I feel like gets kind of brushed off as like, well, you know, a lot of people are tired or they're overworked or something like that. Whereas the fatigue that people with hypermobility, EDS experience, it's, and I'm sure you know this too, Carrie, it's, it's completely unmanageable. It's like, you just literally cannot, you just can't do anything. And it's, it's answering an email is exhausting, right? Like Mm -hmm. that level of fatigue, it just, there's no talking your way out of it. Whereas like sometimes some amount of pain, especially a pain you've had for a while, you can kind of push yourself through it. even though, you know, you're going to feel worse later, the fatigue can be, can be a, a really a big barrier, especially if you're have a connective tissue disorder and you're trying to rehab your entire body. So when I address this with with patients, the first thing that I do is try to get to the root of their fatigue, because if we just try to therapy itself away with PT or exercise, it's not going to go anywhere. That's not going to fix their fatigue. So I'll do a lot of education and just discussions to see how much people understand or if they know where this fatigue is coming from, because there's so many potential causes and help them at least try to get to the root of it so that can help give them a little bit more support and energy. So for example, if you have dysautonomia and your fatigue is coming because of your POTS or because your blood pressure is low, there's no amount of, you know, of PT exercises that we're going to do at the moment to help your dysautonomia feel better. Like that needs to be managed. That needs to be addressed, identified, treated with all of the things that we do, water, salt, compression, et cetera. Like that needs to be on board first, even before we start thinking about exercise. There's also very commonly thyroid issues that are underdiagnosed or not recognized. Um, I just had a patient the other day and she was like, really, again, just struggling with fatigue. And I talked to her about thyroid. She's like, you know what? Actually, now that you mention it, like my hair has also been falling out and like five other thyroid symptoms. And the doctor hadn't thought of it and she hadn't thought to bring it up. Like it just needed a whole conversation. Um, a lot of primary doctors, when just screening thyroid, will just do a, a THS, just a general thyroid um, screening test, and they won't dive deeper. Whereas there's, if they do, were to do a full thyroid panel, they may actually see some lower thyroid levels or like borderline low that maybe could potentially be treated. Um, so that's really important to address that and get that taken care of. Same goes with nutrient uh, deficiencies, because like I mentioned, the GI disorders are so incredibly common. If your GI system isn't functioning, there's all sorts of nutrients that we're likely not absorbing. And with the proper identification and supplementation, that can actually make a really big difference in how you're feeling and your fatigue and your ability to absorb nutrients and and have energy. Um, Same goes with, again, if you're having pain, uh, nausea, lack of appetite, you know, just the lack of, number one, lack of nutrients, but also just lack of calories in your diet, lack of protein, that can also be causing fatigue. So all of it needs to be, it's not something I do as a physical therapist. I don't treat those, any of those issues, but often we are functioning as something of a coordinator of these other disciplines because we thankfully have time to spend with people. As a, as a therapist, so I can help steer people in the right direction, help them know how to navigate the medical system so they know what kind of tests to ask for, what kind of doctors to go to. 
that's a really big component of dealing with fatigue. In addition to that, then it's just in terms of how to structure exercise and movement, there's things like pacing yourself can be really important, of course. And so we all tend to suffer from the boom and bust cycle where you just go, go, go until you crash. Um, so learning how to manage that so that we take smaller breaks before the the battery is completely on low, that ex- small things but make a big difference in that regard. Keeping your exercise in a you know, in that sub-threshold level before you get those crashes, which that takes a little bit of trial and error. But in, in general, what I've found is cardio exercises tend to be more challenging in this regard than do like strength and stability exercises, where perhaps you can even do those laying down, things like that, whereas the cardio component may be a little bit more uh, of something that takes more work or takes some, getting some other things on board. So, so that kind of is it. Uh, touches on what we do for fatigue. That's a, a, honestly a big part of what I do. Yeah. yeah and so complicated. Yeah. But yeah. that's a great overview. Yeah. So, and then pain is again, kind of very multifaceted way to address it. One thing that I'd like to mention to people is like, I use bracing, I use taping, I use assistive devices. I'd like to encourage people to give their body the extra support that they need. There seems to be a little bit of a myth out there that if you use those kind of things, it's going to make you weak and you won't be able to ever use those muscles again. But when you have so much laxity in your joints and we're trying to work on stability in, in your entire body, you know, using some sort of braces, tapes, things like that, just to get you by in the short term, ultimately usually allows people to be more functional in everyday life and gain more confidence and build more strength, build more endurance so that down the road, maybe they don't need this kind of things as much. So that's an important part of getting pain under control and can be something that's relatively quick, kind of like a quick thing, you know, using a brace, using something to kind of stabilize you short term, whereas like the longer term building the strength of stability is a longer process. And the important thing to notice with the the strengthening stability, the exercise itself is it has to be your whole body. And I can't tell you how many patients I've seen that come to work with me specifically because they're like, well, I went to PT and, you know, it helped my shoulder, but then I told them about my knee and they couldn't do anything about my knee. And then, you know, and that's kind of story goes on. And that's really unfortunate because as a therapist, we have the skills to be able to help someone with their entire body, but um, they really do need to be, it needs to be addressed. Because if you have a shoulder problem, it could be becoming from something, you know, in your gait and the way your hip strength is, is changing your posture and changing the way you're moving your arm. Like we're all connected. So it really needs to be an entire body approach to, to our exercises. Absolutely. And I'm glad you corrected that misperception because yeah, there is this idea that if you don't use muscles that they'll they'll decondition and that certainly is something that hypermobile people experience and I get the sense from the people I speak to that we condition do we decondition very rapidly, but it's this double-edged sword between managing your pain and the immediacy of the pain versus the long-term goals, those things really should be in in balance. And so it's not healthy to torture yourself and and be in constant pain to try to save a little bit of muscle strength. You're taxing your mind. Like it's it's really difficult being in extreme pain. And I think it, it takes a huge toll. 
Yeah, absolutely. And kind of going back to what we were talking about, the, the nervous system and the way we understand pain and its processing in your, your brain, when you push through pain, it basically reinforces those painful patterns, right? It ramps up your nervous system to essentially experience pain even further in that area. So if you just push and push and push, it actually accentuates that pain response in that area. So if you kind of go at a at it in the opposite light of doing less, finding like what's the sub threshold amount of movement and activity you can do that doesn't flare up that pain response and navigate that, let that movement of finding like what's the amount of movement that I can do that helps me reach the goals I'm going to. It's working the muscles that I need to work, but without quite crossing that line. Like how do I find that? And that's where like really working with a therapist is so helpful because they can help find that moving target of where's that line with the definitely some trial and error. And then little by little that threshold moves rather than pushing past it every time and then having weeks of rebound. Totally. And I love how you described it as a moving target because I think we also have a sense, we live in a culture here in the US, but it's definitely prevalent globally where, you know, we expect to constantly be making progress and leveling up and, you know, whatever the terminology you want to use. Mm -hmm. But with us, you know, it often feels like one step forward, fall down the stairs backwards, like, you know, even more dramatically mm -hmm. than the two steps back. But it's so important to recognize that just, beca just because you're able to do, you know, X activity one day, not only you may not be able to do that the next day, but you may have a few days of that recovery and the delayed onset muscle soreness that a lot of us deal with. And so it can be psychologically frustrating and damaging to, to have this frustration of why is my level of, of ability and capability so variable and it's it's so hard to plan for your life when it's you know so all over the place so I think that's a really important insight about the value of working with a professional who can help find your own moving target threshold of where that pain level is you know is coming in being too much and staying shy of that to the extent possible. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very challenging. And a lot of people talk about, and I've experienced this myself too, of not knowing when you're doing too much. Because mm -hmm. I don't know, care if you've experienced this too, but the pain sometimes, or mo actually more often, becomes more apparent after the mm -hmm. thing, not during it. <laughs> you may not be aware of it during the moment. Uh, there's endorphins or whatever the case may be. I don't think it's well uh, established scientifically why this phenomenon happens, but it's pretty universal from every hypermobile patient I work with is I just don't know when I'm overdoing it because it do my body doesn't tell me in the moment. That's where it gets, it, it does tend to get a little bit trickier for sure. And what we need to do in those situations is break things down to much smaller components. So instead of doing everything under the sun, like picking a few key things focusing on it, break it down to the most essential components that you need to potentially work on, moving very slowly through those movements and moving in a very systematic way. So starting at a level that seems like, okay, this is about what I can handle for this particular type of movement. And then see how you do within 24, 48 hours afterwards, and then understand, okay, that was good. Now I can stay there for a little while rather than advancing at every single session or every single workout like you might normally think someone might think well that was fine so let's just make it harder 
I like to keep the progression. There's a definite progression because you definitely want to not just do the same exercises forever, but the progression I tend to do a bit slower for sure, just because there is that delayed onset pain that you just don't know until you're going to cross it. So it's good to like really solidly establish your baseline with a particular movement as best as possible before going and advancing it. That's so important. You know, a lot of us, I myself am a deeply impatient person. I just, I want the results. I want to keep going, you know, and it's like that it's so hard to restrain that and stay in that lane that sort of baseline and and do it steadily because for a lot of us you know we've been you know kind of suffering for a long time and we just want this to be over and we want to kind of go back or what you know we have these kind of conflicting thoughts and so it's so important to work with someone who understands these things and be able to walk you through that You, you were just saying how and i i that definitely resonated with me about how the body doesn't send the signal that it's in pain in the moment and then you feel it afterwards. And I've definitely experienced that. And I also wonder how much is it that my body doesn't send the message and how much it is that my brain doesn't listen to the message because (laughs) we're kind of socialized to, you know, no pain, no gain, push past those things. And I think in my experience, I think my own ability in speaking with other hypermobile people, I do think we have kind of an exceptional ability to compartmentalize and focus in the moment and kind of overlook our bodily needs and the messages that now this is starting to get too much. And so re-establishing that relationship with your own body and learning to listen to those you know, initial whispers or those initial, you know, suggestions that things aren't right is, is so challenging and yet so important. So yeah, thank you for highlighting that. And what do you think are, you know, the other biggest challenges that you see in your practice working with hypermobile people uh, beyond pain and fatigue? And how do you address them in your practice? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I honestly think the biggest problem is not being heard or believed like going to doctors and not being taken seriously or just not being listened to or just speaking with physicians, practitioners that don't understand, that's by far one of the biggest challenges because by the time someone gets a diagnosis or gets to a point where they can start treating it, it's usually, I mean, what's the, what's the average time to diagnosis of EDS? It's like 15 years or something. Um, that is 10 to 12 years. I thought I saw some study saying the mean age to diagnosis was 34 years, but I went back and looked for that and couldn't find it again. But regardless, way too long for sure. It's, it's way too long. It's way too long. And just like anything, any other kind of medical condition, the sooner you can identify and address it, the easier that the management is. So that to me is the, the biggest issue that needs to be corrected as, as quickly as possible so that people continue to get the treatment that they need sooner. It would prevent so many issues long-term. So that's, that's number one. And then the thing that, about it that kind of puts fuel on the fire is that after having years of being not heard, not believed, there's a lot of medical trauma, a lot of PTSD related to feeling like you've been gaslit by providers. So there's a whole other aspect of psychological trauma that happens as a result of that that's just something else that needs to be treated. So it's really important that we as providers, as us physical therapists, hopefully start becoming better at recognizing this in their patients and pointing people in the right direction so that they can get diagnosed quicker and the 
medical community becomes more aware as well and starts getting diagnosis sooner. So that's that's by far number one. Um, the second thing I would say, kind of like I brought up earlier, and it, this might be my bias because it was such a big problem with me, is, is the GI dysfunction. And a lot of the GI dysfunction that people with EDS have is more in the category of functional GI disorders. So it's not something that you can easily identify with a colonoscopy or an endoscopy, right? It's um, not something that there's a, like a one medication and that's going to fix it. It's more very complex, you know, um, gut motility, microbiome type things. Uh, dysautonomia may be a very big part of why the GI system is not working well. So there's, it's a very complex issue and not a lot of, um, at least in my experience, uh, general GI doctors weren't particularly helpful in my, in my situation because they were excellent at treating Crohn's or colon cancer or ulcerative colitis or any of those kind of, um, those kind of GI conditions, but something that was a little more functional, like, like SIBO or leaky gut, which is, uh, you know, still people believe that's maybe not even a thing or, uh, poor gut motility. Like that's something that's a little less well understood and how to treat. And the gut is so important with the rest of uh, it can create so many other issues in your body. And in fact, like having inflammation in, in, your, in your gut or having decreased um, absorption of your nutrients, that alone can feed into pain and brain fog and fatigue and all of those other things. So um, the GI dysfunction really, I feel like, is something that needs better, uh, again, awareness of, better understanding. And this is where I feel like hopefully uh, the more mainstream medical community GI doctors become better at this. Um, but at the moment, when I talk to patients about it, they're struggling with GI issues too. What I usually recommend for people to do is to look for an integrative doctor who is a little bit more up to speed with this kind of functional condition. So either an integrative doctor or even a naturopathic doctor, someone who will look a little more holistically at their, their entire system uh, that can be that can be a game changer for some people. Absolutely, and I thank you so much for highlighting those two key issues, which are extremely common in the hypermobile community and among those who have Ehlers-Danlos. First, the medical trauma, the PTSD, the gaslighting—it's a huge issue, and it's, it's so great that you recognize that and the the profound implications that that has. For patients. I was just curious. So I took a look on mean time to diagnosis. And I immediately hit on the amazing Dumbler article, which I highly encourage anyone to check out if you haven't read it yet. It's the Wales population prevalence study that showed that EDS is definitely not rare. Um, yet another ugh, misperception that's very frustrating. And kudos to Courtney Gensimer for putting out great content on how EDS is rarely diagnosed. Um, but you know, HEDS in particular, definitely not rare. Um, and we just don't know about the other subtypes because there's never been a study of all of the types. But in the Demler article, they talk about a mean of 14 years between first clinical manifestations. And again, this is in Wales. So I don't know what mm -hmm. it's like in the US. I assume it's actually higher than that. And the time of actual diagnosis. And they say for 25% of patients, this delay lasts over 28 years. That is unacceptable. That is so awful. And, you know, in this time of modern medicine and access to all of this information and, you know, Ehlers and Danlos did their research 
I believe at the latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, you know, Hippocrates described hypermobility in 400 BC. Like this is unacceptable and this is causing so much suffering. And so thank you for highlighting that issue. It is, it's a profound issue in the community and it's awful. And, you know, there just really needs to be more humility in the face of all that is unknown in medicine. And I thought the interview that Dr. Chopra gave was just excellent on that. And he spoke to this issue um, and, and noted, you know, he's not a cardiologist, but he knows if to you know look for the signs of a heart attack or, or something that would require a cardiologist and then to refer in that instance and that that's the way it should work. There are just so many doctors who either don't know anything about Ehlers-Danlos or there's the view of, oh, lucky you, you're so flexible, you know, and all of that. <laughs> and it's it's got to change. It's just, oh, that's awful. And thank you for highlighting the GI dysfunction. I think that is one of the huge comorbidities that, you know, and that word too, oh, I, and I, there's so much medical <laughs> terminology. I just can't stand. It's like, can just rewrite the whole um, medical dictionary at this point, like comorbidities. It sounds so morbid, literally morbid, right? <laughs> uh, a co-occurring condition. There you go. Um, or, you know, frequent feature of hypermobility. And that's something I hear about all the time from hypermobile people that I speak with and something I'm very much dealing with right now myself. So, and I think, yeah, you're absolutely right that most of people are experiencing functional GI issues, you know, not something that's going to show up on a scan, which also goes back to this, you know, medical gaslighting and misdiagnosis issue. For a lot of doctors, you know, they do whatever test is in their field, the colonoscopy, the endoscopy, whatever, and it comes back with no findings. And they say, well, you know, there's, we didn't find anything. So you're good. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, I mean, just because you can't see something on a scan, which is, you know, a limited slice of information at one point in time, certainly we know does not mean that there's not something going wrong and reminds me of uh, the story that I think was in the documentary Unrest, um, which is great by Jen Brea, if you haven't seen it. Um, it's it's really, really challenging and difficult material, you know, especially exercise viewer discretion, especially if, you know, you're watching with kids or something, because um, it, it's, it's heavy and it's, um, it's tough to watch. But I think in that she made the point that people with, I think it's MS, were thought to be fakers and malingerers until I think it was the CT scan that was invented that showed how their condition was manifesting. And, you know, and then it totally changed the game and people realized, oh, no, this is a very real condition that is profoundly disabling for some people and extremely challenging for others. And in watching imaging potentially evolving, I heard about some technology a few years ago that seemed like it was going to be a game changer, but I haven't heard anything about it since. So uh, I don't know, but I do know we need better scanning capabilities, but we really need doctors who are willing to have an open mind, listen to their patients, believe them and investigate what's going on. And a lot of these things can be treatable, but you have to you know, have the knowledge and awareness that something real is going on before you can begin to treat them. So I think you're right on with those big challenges beyond pain and fatigue, which are already huge challenges. Oh, they're, yeah, they're big enough just in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it's interesting you bring up the, you know, the need for better test and hopefully we'll have a 
some genetic information for HEDS at some point. But in the short term, it's really actually kind of mind blowing because the more that I learn about EDS, the more easy, I mean, it, it really is fairly easy to recognize in people. You know, you can see the joint hypermobility, you can measure a bite and scale really quickly, you can listen to their symptoms. And by the time you listen to, I get lightheaded or fatigued or headaches when I stand up a long time, or I react to every kind of food or different, you know, medications react strongly to it, or I get all these, you know, immune system responses, like the, the triad of joint hypermobility, pain, dysautonomia, MCAS, it's, it's such a very clear clinical picture to me now that it's kind of blows my mind that it's not well understood. I 100% agree with you on that. Again, it's unacceptable <laughs> Yeah, um, because there are these things that are so prominent and there's so much physical evidence for them. You know, you can't fake a tilt table test. You can't right. fake the flexibility of your joints. You can't fake a trip taste test. And so the fact that there are still to this day people out there publishing articles on how EDS is psychosomatic and, you know, it's primarily cognitive and new neurophenotypes that people are proposing. It's like people are really missing, you know, the forest for the trees when it comes to this stuff. And, and I agree when I speak to hypermobile people, I hear the similarities and the threads that run through those stories are profound and give me the sort of spine tingles because there's so much similarity at the same time of there being so much difference, because this is a spectrum condition, but ultimately there is so much similarity, and I completely agree. Do you, so do you treat patients with a variety of physical capability levels, or is there a general demographic of patient that you end up working with primarily? Oh, yeah. So I, I work with people of all different levels of that spectrum. So I've got people that I work with that are basically bedbound, and then I've got on the high end of the spectrum, people who are training to con continue dancing at, at a high level. So I would say the majority of the people I see are somewhere in the middle, just kind of like everything else. But I do I do treat all areas of the spectrum, um, and I'm very I'm very happy to. I don't like to specifically focus on just one part of that because I mean, hopefully, as we move and we learn how to work with what, where, you know, wherever your starting point may be, hopefully you can move and continue on into a, a, a higher level of that spectrum. And the, the principles of what we need to do are not really all that different, to be honest, whether you're at, at a bed bound level or even at a higher level athlete, there's still very fundamental things that we need to understand about our, our, our muscles and our joints and how to stabilize them. It's just a matter of degree. So someone at a much lower level, you're going to do things at a much lower intense level. And in the higher level, you're going to work at a higher level. But the the fundamental principles there are the same. That's great. And I think that's it's, it's amazing that you're able to do that because it's such a a broad range of people. And yet that's got to be so informative. Working with people at all points in the spectrum, you know, gives you a fuller perspective of what this condition is, which you've obviously reflected by cogently summing up the key issues and clearly have these insights. And, and it's important to recognize too, that that spectrum can occur within an individual, you know, like we can, we all, all of our functional and capability levels will vary throughout our lifetime. And, you know, we think of it as like 
you know, kind of an upward trajectory until a certain point and then a downward trajectory. And that is not the case with HEDS. You know, I've seen people who were really debilitated or had significant challenges come to a place of more stability and more function. I've certainly seen the opposite, the, the declines. I think a lot of times the declines are precipitated by a lack of appropriate medical treatment, a lack of understanding, you know, things that should be preventable causes, but certainly there can be other factors there too. But um, I think that's so great to be treating and working with the spectrum and uh, sounds very challenging, but also sounds like you're up for the challenge. So that's great. Yeah, absolutely. And being able to kind of move with the ebb and flow is one of my, the things I enjoy the most about being a therapist and helping people understand how to help themselves through that, because it's going to happen. You're going to have good, you're going to have bad your days, you're going to have times where suddenly what you used to be able to do may not work as well for whatever reason. And understanding how to navigate that, that's really part of the key component of education that I do with people and probably for myself was so incredibly helpful. Like being a PT, like when those things came up, I knew what to do. Like when I have a massage and suddenly I had radiculopathy and my neck and arm were in excruciating pain for weeks. Like I, it didn't freak me out because I knew what to do. I'm like, okay, I know what this is. This is what I do. Or when suddenly your back goes out or suddenly some, you know, something different happens. I had tools as a therapist and all this other training to know how to handle it. And some of these things that you can do, it's, it, you know, there's a, a lot that's variable person to person, but there are some kind of basic fundamentals of like how to take care of your body that I feel like all of us as hypermobile people, we should kind of pulled into a special gym class in high school <laughs> that are like, okay, hey, so you have this extra bendy body. When XYZ happens, this is how you're going to handle it. You're going to do these small movements. You can kind of test yourself to see what things you can do to help things feel a little bit better. There's some very basic on a very low level. You can figure some of these things out once you understand a little bit about anatomy and physiology and how your body works. And having that kind of power to help yourself when you get into those situations and to know how to take your movement practice and alter it to a, a way that's going to feel safe during a flare up or during a little bit of a, a something that might've gone, gone awry to be able to bring yourself back to a place of stability is really, really valuable. And I, I teach this, of course, with all of my one-on-one -on -one patients. And then I even created an eight week online course. That's kind of like a group coaching format where I can help people learn all of these like most fundamental skills that I feel like help almost everyone with hypermobility to understand some of these very basic fundamental ways that our body moves, what muscles are involved, how the movement patterns should look, and how to isolate some of your stabilizing muscles. Once you have some of those baseline uh, basics down, it really sets you up for success for, for those ebbs and flows. So they're not as dramatic. That's amazing. And your course sounds incredible. We're, we'll include links to your website and to your Instagram page uh, in the episode notes. So anyone interested in checking out that program can find more information. And I share your dream of either a separate gym class or like a, a specific kind of hypermobile training, a, a guide to, to your body as a hypermobile person, because we do have different, um, challenges and, and different abilities and being able to recognize that in a context where it's not competitive and, you know, you're not worried about standing out, you know, against your peers, like many of us experience in the normal or the typical gym class environment. I think that's, uh, that's a wonderful dream. 
Are there any exercises or repetitive movements that seem to be the most harmful for hypermobile people or any other activities that you think generally should be avoided by many people with EDS or other hypermobility conditions? Or do you find this to be extremely individualized? Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely individualized. Um, I can say with pretty high confidence that high impact sports like football and rugby are probably on the, the worst list of things to want to try to do as a hypermobile person where you are not in control of someone running into you. And then I would say actually the second most dangerous thing would probably be a sedentary lifestyle, just literally not having do a movement practice that you're doing regularly, especially if it's been that way for a long time. And I know a lot of people, like when I say that, it might sound like, ooh, um, you know, I'm in so much pain, I can't move. You may be in that state where you are limited in what kind of movement you're kind of forced into a sedentary lifestyle. Um, and I mean it more in the sense of as time goes on early on in life, the earlier we can get involved in, in movement and training our bodies to be stable and to be strong. It just seems to do so much to be able to prevent some of the things that happen down the road, especially if you're in a job that's that's fairly sedentary. I've heard so many s stories of people that, especially with the pandemic, that they they're hyper, they were hypermobile, they were maybe having some symptoms, and but they had it somewhat controlled with some exercise. And as soon as the pandemic hit and they get off of their exercise program or they are pregnant, have a baby, like something changes drastically in how much they're able to move. And that's when pain becomes a really big issue. So in terms of the, the exact movements or exercise you should or shouldn't be doing, that's there's definitely some room for there's certain things being better than others. But one of the leading factors I feel like to creating some of these problems is kind of our modern lifestyle is we're just not moving as, as much, which is really, really difficult for a hypermobile body that needs and craves that extra stability to keep it, um, keep it functional. And then, so it's like the, that high end, very high extreme, the sedentary lifestyle is definitely something to avoid. And then everything else in between is, is in a, basically in a spectrum spectrum. I've heard lots of people, uh, saying things like, you know, running is bad or, uh, yoga is bad, or even like doing things like kettlebell swings. And all of that I feel like is, uh, depends on the person and how you do it. It's more about the technique that you use if your body's ready for it and training in a way that you may be able to do that safely. Although some of those uh, things like running, yoga, like there is a, a right way and a wrong way and you have to be doing other things, strength training and stability work. So they're on the more challenging side versus things, something like Tai Chi or water movements where you're very moving very slowly and controlled would be a little bit more friendly to, to a beginner or just starting out with movements. That makes a lot of sense. And I can certainly see how high impact activities would be particularly potentially dangerous. I have noticed some football players do seem to be hypermobile. I've seen, never really watched much football, but I've seen a bit and I've definitely seen some knees moving beyond the range of motion. Uh, and I worry about those people particularly. And that's where that awareness and knowledge from as early of an age as is helpful and useful, I think would be really great. But that that makes sense kind of trying as much as possible to avoid those extremes. You know, sometimes we are stuck in bed for one reason or another. But just knowing that anything, even if it's like exercises like lying supine, you know, or like you said, water exercises, that's something that's 
really helpful for me. It's challenging to find a pool without chlorine and that's heated and all <laughs> other things that I need to be able to be in a pool. But yeah, that certainly helps for me, you know, having the pot symptoms and often being unsteady on my feet and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's that's a great overview. For many people, physical therapy really feels like a chore. Do you have any tips or tricks for making it more fun and interesting? <laughs> that's such a good question. One thing I like to do with this is make it a little bit of a mindset shift because when it comes to doing therapy and doing neuromotor re-education, so we're often not just working on strength training, we're working on retraining your nervous system, how to move in a very specific way. And the problem with that, in order for that to happen, is it does have to be fairly repetitive, right? We have to take movements, break it down to their smaller components and repeat it enough that your nervous system will change how it's doing things. And there is a repetitive aspect to that, and I get it. It's boring. Um, however, if you can convince yourself to do it, it is by far the most efficient and effective way to get the goal that you're to reach the goal that you're you're attempting to reach, right? However, if you're not able to either make that happen, then there's a no number of reasons why that might not happen. It just it's you know finding motivation. There's so many factors that can get in the way of like completing your what is your prescribed exercise program. If you can't, then the next best thing is to at least find something you do really like and kind of uh, work backwards from there, right? So whatever is that thing that lights you up, that gets you excited, that helps you feel like you want to move, whether it be uh, dancing or uh, something that's outdoors or whatever the case may be, kind of do it, uh, work backwards from that and see if there's a way and maybe working with the therapist again could help you with that. Say like, okay, what, okay, I feel good about this type of movement practice, but maybe I, there's a, like a way I can modify it to make it a little safer for me. Maybe that's where using bracing taping and things like that might make something like doing the, doing a dance class or taking like rock climbing, surprisingly enough, is something I've had a lot of, I've heard a lot of people with hypermobility do really well with because it's very, a lot of isometric contractions. You're holding your body very still and moving in a very slow and controlled way, moving a lot of different parts of your body at the same time. You know, there's, there's not any one right way to do this. Pilates and those types of classes can be really helpful too, because then it, you know, it takes the, the chore out of it. Someone's just literally telling you what to do. You don't have to decide like how many am I going to do. It's, you know, it, the, all of those, that way about it is a little bit more challenging because you have to on the fly, maybe modify things or think about how you want to move in a different way. That'll be safer for your body. But if it gets you doing what you need to do to feel better versus the exact prescribed exercises that you hate and are boring, you might, it's better than nothing. So that's always a, a good option to kind of exp experiment and find what kind of movements work for you. I love that approach. And I think it's so important to take that kind of experimental approach because certainly in my own experience, and I've heard this from others, we can really get our hopes up thinking, okay, I found something that resonates with me. You know, I'm going to, you know, go headlong into this and then finding the challenges and being discouraged. And I think it's such a great mindset to, to have that, that experimental approach of, you know, I'm going to try this for a while. I'm going to check in with my body, see how it's going. And then it's going great, great. And if not kind of reassess and and hopefully do that in the context of having a supportive professional to help through that process. Although, you know, there's so many issues with access to good providers and insurance and all of that stuff that we've, you know, talked about a lot. So 
but that is, that's kind of the dream. And it, it is nice that a lot of this content is available on the internet. You know, some of it's free, some of it's, you know, under a paywall, but, you know, if you're finding something that's really working for you, um, can be a, a big investment in your quality of life. If, you know, if you have the means and the ability to do that. And yeah, I, I think that's a, a great approach. And that, well, and thank you so much, Dr. Melissa, for joining us today and sharing your insights about hypermobility. Your time is so very appreciated. And we really appreciated hearing all of your insights and your unique perspective as both a person with hypermobility and a provider who's closely working with the community as well. So thank you so much. And thank you for all of your great work for the, for the community. Great. Thank you so much, Carrie. Well, that's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. As always, feel free to reach out to us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions for future guests or topics, or if you just want to chat and share your thoughts. See you next time. Bye.